Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. We got a lot of really interesting news to cover today, including some new documents out of Guantanamo Bay that suggest that some of the 9-11 hijackers may have been CIA assets and more. Uh, we're going to react to a video about Warren Buffett uh, dumping some uh, Taiwan semiconductor stock, potentially indicating there might be something on the horizon with China and Taiwan, or at least he thinks there might be. And finally, the Biden administration has just released a rule that will effectively redistribute high-risk loan costs to homeowners with good credit. Uh, here to talk about all this stuff is the usual cast of characters, David Rand, Henri Pellerin, Kyle and Evan back there pushing buttons. David, let's start off with the the new Biden rule. What do you think of this from the Biden administration? This is the Neville result of the philosophy of redistribution, where it says, like, if you have a lot, your duty is to have the top of whatever you have to be curved off. If you've been responsible and paid your debts, what you now have to do, you now have to bear the burden of paying someone else's mortgage on top of your own. It's it's uh, it's interesting uh, because it is actually a consistent pursuit of that, but it so triggers the fundamental fairness doctrine of people who are saying, look, I paid my bills. How could I possibly be responsible for someone else who either didn't pay their bills or haven't had a chance to start building their credit the way I did to you know get some of my money? It's absolutely absurd, and it, but but I mean, ultimately consistent with the president's philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's, seems like the continuation of the student loan forgiveness uh, initiative that they pushed earlier this year, which which was struck down in some way, right? Yeah, the, the, yeah, it was struck down. Yeah. And do you think that this sort of action has similar potential to be struck down or in some way enjoined by a court or? Yeah, so Congress can take action, uh, but it's difficult with the current Senate uh, to take substantial offers. There's a Congressional Review Act where they can object to new administrative rules. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the stretch on college loans was pretty far. It was saying the government can help veterans buy a home or uh, get into college. Therefore, the government can pay off your student loan debts, right. <laughs> which was, uh, was a pretty big stretch. Uh, whether or not this currently exists in code, some players, the code is so big and so complex, and I'm definitely not an expert in it. I couldn't tell you whether or not there's a reasonable um, legal case there. Uh, but it depends on how tightly connected it is with actual authorization language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I think also it illustrates the fundamental just economic illiteracy of a lot of politicians and just the perverse incentives that this kind of thing creates. I think, as I understand it, there's there's two things going on. If you have bad credit, you you get a lower rate, and uh, if you put down a lower down payment, you get a lower rate. So now, if if you're somebody who's going to take out a loan, you are now incentivized to mess up your credit first and then put down less money. And, you know, this would just destabilize the the solvency of most banks if if you now have this incentive to, to act that way. Well, right. And I think, you know, as we were talking about before we started recording, if you have been irresponsible with your money or your finances, regardless of what your, you know, your situation might have been prior to that, you're now being rewarded for that retroactively. So it's not necessarily incentivizing anyone to act better in the future in order to get a better rate. And secondarily, how is this going to impact the banks? Because, you know, as a, a as a bank looking at risk, the price of money for a particular individual is directly correlated to the risk of lending to that individual. So banks are now looking at this going, okay, I have to give, we're going to give a lower rate to an individual who is a higher risk borrower. 
they're not going to do that without some insurance from the government, right? I mean, this is sort of almost Im- implying that the federal government's saying, we will insure these loans, right? Well, because they already did. They had TARP, right? They already had a troubled asset relief program. All these subprime mar- uh, mortgages that were you know, bought up by the government and then resold, right? So I, I, uh, th- this is the, the parallel here to the 2008 financial crisis substantial. A lot of people after the 2008 financial crisis said, well, the problem here is that we gave loans to a bunch of people who couldn't afford them. The motivation to do that was motivation to give people an opportunity to buy a house. That's a noble goal, right? There's nothing wrong with that goal. It's just how you go about it really freaking matters, right? So if you do it that way, where you just say, well, we're just going to reduce, we're just going to give these guys, you know, subprime mortgages, or we're just going to uh, basically make it almost impossible to say no to somebody to a loan, uh, we're, which is, uh, you know, at least in uh, John A. Allison's uh, The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, great book. Uh, that's the case he makes is that there's, there's a, there are many factors went into the 2008 financial crisis, but one of them definitely was a lot of programs meant for low income people to be able to get into a home they could not afford. Now it's an admirable goal. The way to get to that goal is to lower the government barriers that keep housing so expensive, rare and needful of giant loans, right? So we have this incestuous system of NIMBYism, which stands for not in my backyard. People says, I don't want, people who say, I don't want any more development in my county or in my city or my whatever. And I definitely don't want some apartments down the street because those bring in the wrong sorts of people, right? Uh, and then there's, there's, so there's that incentive to restrict the amount of homes that are built in all over America. And this is a uniform problem. Dating back to Hoover, long story on that one. We'll go over it some other time. Uh, and then you have the, the, the perverse incentive of, you know, the realtors and the other industries that lobby to keep a lot of, you know, constraint on building, uh, that keeps housing prices very high. Unfortunately, the realtors as a national organization can be very, can, can suffer from perverse incentives in that area to make sure there's lots of subsidies of housing, lots of subsidies and these other things. And those are, it's a very powerful lobby group. And lastly, the banks, you know, the banks get a, a lot of out of this, right? Because the more large loans that they get, the more money they had to pay with, the more, you know, income they get via interest payments. So um, we have this really bad trifecta because we've deviated so far from the free market of property rights and free exchange and, you know, people are being able to build without a ton of government permission. Yeah. Just to clarify for everyone listening, the um, so these new rules that the Biden administration has brought in would place a 1% surcharge on a new mortgage rate for an individual with a 740 or higher credit score. Um, that's with a 15 to 20% down payment. And individuals with 679 or lower credit score would actually see a one and three quarter percent decrease, a discount off of their mortgage rate with 5% down or less. So, I mean, I think Henri is totally correct. If you were hovering around the 700s, what's to keep you from going, well, really want to buy a house. I'm going to get a cheaper rate. Maybe I'll just go on a buying spree, rack up my credit card debt, max it out, tank my credit score, and and then I can I can buy a house. What's to keep people from wanting to do that? Yeah, nothing. But I mean, also, you know, the 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 banks, you know, lending money is easy. You know, getting the business of of lending money is really about getting your money back. So, you know, what this is doing is is trying to incentivize the market to take out a lot of bad loans. I don't know how it's going to incentivize banks to, to make bad loans. Right. It seems yeah. like the banks are going to go, uh, this is a bad idea. Unless, of course, they know they're going to be backstopped, which history would show they will be. 
So right. I wonder to what degree these low numbers of 1% surcharge and 1.75% 1. fee discount is actually just a straight up electoral play. It's just to get some talking points so that when Biden has to run for re-election next year, he can say all the great things he did for the middle class. I could totally see that. I could totally see that. And then on the other side, Republicans can point the finger and say, see, look how stupid he is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see if it goes anywhere. I, I happen to think that, I mean, along with the student loan situation, this is going to see a similar fate. I, I just don't see how something this backwards, well... Could, well, could you possibly know, like, make it through, it, but but these days, who knows? It blows my mind. Like it, it reminds me as we're talking about this, just how often we always have to talk about things like you know why the minimum wage doesn't make sense and why um, the the uh, the earnings gap between men and women is a fallacy and 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 all these things that are just like constantly um, play well to one side and and if you actually dig into it a little bit, you understand. Well, this is dumb for X, Y, and Z. But, you know, these politicians continue to, to, to try, you know, to do things like this for the talking points, you know, or perhaps, you know, they'll, they'll let it go into effect, whether it's good or not, but they, they get the talking point anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's very clear they're, they're pandering to some degree, trying to get support and get votes. Obviously, Biden is not looking good with these poll numbers we talked about last week. He's got a couple of challengers in the Democratic field. Probably does need to do some things to really stabilize, you know, his reputation and his polling numbers. I don't know. I don't know if this is going to do it. I mean, it it certainly could. But what about what about the Democrats that care about their finances and have, you know, high credit scores? They're not going to be looking at this any differently. This isn't necessarily a partisan issue. You know, it's really I mean, it's really a socioeconomic issue. To a degree. That's true. I, I think it's a fundamental error in democracy. Right. Uh, similar story from the right. TikTok ban. Completely useless state tech talk ban, but you know, it's a great talking point. I tried to keep your kids safe from, you know, the next Tide Pod challenge, right? <laughs> right. So like there's no, it's about getting to the people who have already paid down the mortgages, which is the biggest voting block boomers, right? They're not going to pay anything out of this. True. So why, why wouldn't you? It's, it's a perverse incentive of democracy, ultimately bad policy. Hmm. Well, sticking with the uh, with the economics theme, let's let's talk about Warren Buffett and his his recent actions dumping billions of dollars worth of stock in Taiwan Semiconductor, which is for those that aren't aware the largest semiconductor manufacturer in the world. They make the vast majority of chips for everything that you use: tablets, iPhones, cars, computers. Was was Taiwan Semiconductor the the company that Biden was? bragging about bringing American manufacturing back because he allowed a some uh, semiconductor. I think maybe it was in Arizona or something like that, but I think it was this company. Yeah. I don't recall exactly. We'll have to have Kyle look that up, but I do remember the chips act, which yeah. was passed right with great fanfare was designed to bring chip manufacturing back to the United States. Um, but I believe Nvidia was the company that was implicated directly or was going to receive a lot of that funding. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Nancy Pelosi was heavily invested in NVIDIA before that bill went the Greatest through. investor of our lives. I mean, she's she's an oracle. She's the oracle <laughs> of, of Washington. The interesting thing here with this this uh, Buffett clip is, I, at least I think the, the thing that people are taking note of is how strangely he answers this. He's a guy who's is typically very eloquent despite his age. He's 
very clear and direct with what he's trying to say. And this was most definitely not that kind of behavior. To some, I don't have any idea. It's actually a danger of seismic action. I mean, and, 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 and where they're located, but that's a low probability. And they, you know, they're smart people. But, but. I saw this live and it struck me as odd because I don't think I've ever seen Buffett bounce around a question like that, let alone one asking him about what's behind his decision to sell billions of dollars worth of a company. Now stick with me. I was about to forget about this until this afternoon when I came across Senator Tuberville's latest trades and saw that he purchased put contracts on the same company that Warren Buffett was asked about selling, Taiwan Semiconductors. And if you don't know, put contracts are a way to bet against a company. Now this is a huge red flag because the company that we're talking about is Taiwan Semiconductor, the largest computer chip manufacturer in the world, and one of the main reasons why the US and China are threatening to go to war over Taiwan. The US has already signaled that if China did try to invade Taiwan, that they would literally blow up the semiconductor facilities on the island and move the engineers to the US rather than let China get its hands on the technology. So to cut to the point, I'm not trying to fearmonger, but when I see one of the best investors of all time abruptly selling billions in Taiwan semiconductor stock and not giving a clear answer as to why, along with the senator betting against the stock who sits on the Committee for Armed Services giving him access to classified military info, it makes me wonder if they know something that we don't about Taiwan. To see who else is selling Taiwan semiconductor stock, check out QuiverQuant, and thanks for watching. I have no idea what QuiverQuant is, but... I think that's a very interesting accusation. I actually looked around the internet a lot to try to find a cleaner clip of that Warren Buffett component, uh, and I could not anywhere. Mm. Uh, and that's such a consequential thing. I saw all kinds of other stuff about you know talking heads justifying the sale, but I could not find that clip anywhere else mm-hmm. uh, of Warren Buffett talking about that. Because I mean, and we kind of started a little bit late there, but he completely flubs it, completely flubs it, uh, and it's it's seismic. Uh, but you know, that's yeah. a low probability. Uh, you know, like it was, it was so wild to watch him because he's you normally such an articulate person, yeah, and especially of something so consequential. And then, not to mention, I want you to get to thinking about the geopolitics and the trades by a congressman that's substantial. It is substantial. What is the latest in the South China Sea right now? I mean, I know that China has been staging some, some drills in the waters off of Taiwan. I mean effectively just sort of jockeying and sort of posturing and trying to make themselves, you know, look scary, I'm sure, but sending a message, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Is this just simple coincidence that, you know, Warren Buffett being a shrewd investor is looking at this situation going, this could go one way or another. And I don't necessarily want several, you know, billion dollars just blown up by the United States government in the, in the, in the uh, chance that the United States goes to war for Taiwan with China? Mm-hmm. Uh, that very well could be it. Uh, it's obviously speculation. I think it's uh, indicative of a increasing escalatory spiral that's happening. Macron, the prime minister of Macron? France. France. Yeah. But of Macaroon. France, Macron. Macaron. I don't know. Mm, delicious. <laughs> nice cookies. Uh, so the uh, basically said, hey, if you guys go to war over Taiwan, we're not going to back you here in France. Marco Rubio responded with the most bonkers response ever. And there's like, well, maybe we'll just pull out of Ukraine and we can fight that war and we'll go fight China. It was like the weirdest. It, and and he, I don't know. Like, I don't remember Marco Rubio having that, um, the way he was talking, like he kind of sounded like a mob, you know, mafioso <laughs> yeah, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't remember him having that, uh, I don't, you know, 
that persona, you know, back in 2016 when he was kind of in the most national spotlight mm-hmm. during the primaries. I think he's trying to reinvent his image as an as like, Italian heard, mobster. Hey, you like, guys better right, make different yeah, was, decisions. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like... <laughs> They'll be swimming with the fishes in the South China Sea. Yeah, it, it really did, like, come off that way. Oh, I, I, I thought that was a perfect analysis of what he said. I mean, like, it, it was such a... Um, it was a weird inflection moment because it... It was like, we don't need to spend money in Ukraine. We're just doing it to help you guys. So we can just take that money. We can go play over in China. And I was like, wait, do we really need to do either of these two things? That's insane. Number one. Number two, the response, I think, I mean, it is an interesting response, right? Because we have been talking about how, you know, everything's happening with China's relationship with Saudi Arabia, with Iran, with Russia, what's going on in India, between India and Russia, their opposition to Ukraine. If what's happening is we are driving Russia into the hands of the BRICS, nations with an even firmer, uh, there's like a bug that keeps on uh, navigating between us, with an even more firm uh, reason for them to block together against American interests. That is the biggest foreign policy blunder of all time, perhaps. I mean, that's that's a horrifyingly huge deal when it comes to the hegemonic moment. That could be the pivot away. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm never going to disagree with Brad. He's way too much smart. He's way smarter than I am. But Reliance on the dollar is in part reliant upon the hegemony of our military and our trade bloc. If that is splitting into two, that's a huge difference uh, in when it comes to the landscape between you know Warren Buffett and what's going on with the South China Sea and this congressman stocks trading. And I think you know obviously taking an eye on that, I think is a very interesting one. That could tell us a lot about what's happening behind the scenes and how at least um, American foreign policy elite and American industrial elite might be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We will definitely keep our eyes on this one. Uh, and, well, well, we should find out here in the next few months. If, if something crazy happens, we'll definitely bring it back to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's always something to keep in mind is like there's the old Vladimir Lenin quote, right, where it's uh, there's some there's some decades when weeks happen and some weeks when decades happen. Like it feels like we're starting to move into one of those moments right now where like everything that you were talking about, Dave, with bricks is we're starting to see all these like, oh, this person's this this group's not using the U.S. dollar anymore. This group's not using the U.S. dollar anymore. Oh, they're going to use the RMB. Like we're starting to see all these shifts happen very quickly geopolitically right now. So it seems like we're kind of moving into this big transitionary period. It does. And I mean, I I would actually ask your thoughts, Kyle. I know there's been a lot of moving and shaking in the crypto space lately with Congress making certain actions or the SEC saying certain things. I know Gary Gensler was in front of Congress for a hearing and things are starting to shake up where it looks like the U.S. is sort of, or at least the administration is trying to kind of purge cryptocurrency out of the United States at this moment. Is that about right? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of like allegations that are happening around, around the crypt- crypto space. There's a guy, uh, Nick Carter, for instance, is doing a lot of good work on this, talking about Operation Chokepoint 2.0 which Operation Chokepoint happened in the Obama administration. It was a way of squeezing out firearms companies and like and weed dispensaries out of their banking. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of that, especially with like Silvergate and everything that's happened with some of these bank collapses. A lot of the, uh, there seems to be evidence that a lot of this is going towards like crypto friendly banks. Um, and especially with things like uh, Silvergate's fiat settlement rails that are kind of integrated with blockchain tech. 
um, the FDIC is basically holding those things hostage in the in the bankruptcy proceedings. So mm. th- there is some interesting stuff there. I'm not super well versed in everything that's going on, but there is there seems to be attacks that are happening yeah. right now for sure. Well, and, and part of me just wonders, you know, how much of this is going to compound because there's a lot of money in the crypto space. There's a lot of innovation going on there, and if we're just pushing all of this industry and innovation overseas, it's just going to further and further weaken. The United States oh, as an economic force. That's also worth saying too, is I know because Russia, China, all this stuff, there's a bunch of moves towards using the RMB, the digital yuan. And um, I know Russia, a bunch of big, big wigs in Russia were just talking about how we might be prepared to start using Bitcoin for oil sales and things like that. So Interesting. like we are moving in weird directions right now. Who knows where all this stuff goes, right? Very true. Follow the money. That much we know. As much as you can, anyways. Uh, obviously, we don't know about things often until well after they've happened, you know, with with uh, FOIA requests and things like that. But uh, in slightly different news, we, we do have, as we discussed at the beginning, some new documents that have just come out uh, from Guantanamo Bay court filings. Uh, these were declassified, correct? Uh, suggesting that that some of the 9-11 hijackers were possibly CIA assets. David, I know you, you've you dug into this story a little bit. Can you kind of lay the groundwork for what that looks like, what that means? Yeah, it's interesting because it hasn't got a lot of mainstream coverage. Uh, it kind of sat right below the surface of that. I mean, it got peaked on Twitter once or twice, but that was about it. Uh, it's an interesting story. So a former DEA agent, I uh, forget the guy's name, not important, um, was tasked with being part of the 9-11 commission part of the prosecution for one of the uh for a terrorist associated with al-qaeda um he went to guantanamo bay that person a lot the the in the investigation this person discovers according to these release documents which the original declassified document had a bunch of redactions and then there was another document that was pulled out of the system somehow that matches that document that doesn't have the redactions Mm. and what those suggest are two important things for everyone to take away. One, the CIA prior to 9-11 was trying to infiltrate Al-Qaeda with assets. Two, those assets might have participated in either support or direct, you know, in, you know, action in 9-11. And so this would be something similar to sort of the entrapment cases like the the Whitmer kidnapping or something similar? Well, or in this, this case, different no, I don't, I, I don't think we have evidence of that. Just that um, in, in that fact where some ball was dropped or that person used us rather than us using them, mm. right? Because it could be a double agent function. Sure. The CIA, in the embarrassment of that, obstructed, according to this DA agent, obstructed the 9-11's commission investigation into the causes of what happened with, with 9-11. Oh, because they didn't want it to come out that the CIA had a part right. in this activity. So you get the, the DEA, the FBI, and the CIA fighting each other to make to see who gets the blame in the 9-11 commission. And that's the response, right? And this would, and additionally to that, a really big implication in the documents is that Saudi intelligence had some relationship with the hijackers. Hmm. So maybe the Saudis knew. Wow. Or, or implicated. We don't know. We do know that um, there are in the 9-11 commission, there is um, a whole section that's redacted. And it's been said that that section has to do with the Saudis' implication in the acts. And what does that mean? And it's insane to think that it's been 22 years mm-hmm. and we still don't know. That that's still... I mean, that's, that's par for the course for the CIA, though, right? Yes, they, yeah, they've yeah. been 
since the beginning, you know, starting coups and, you know, we don't find out what the real story is ever. But if we, if we do get little bits and pieces of it, it's decades later. Right. So it's, it's crazy of something so consequential that the American people still does not know. Uh, about what happened, what's in that part of the about those docs? Why can't they get declassified? Uh, the government does tend to generally overclassify and then overredact. Like those are two core tenets of the intelligence community, uh, and it really has nothing to do with like operational security. It just has to do with keeping the CIA. Most of the time, just has to do with keeping the CIA or the FBI or these other agencies. We're going to totally get demonetized for me saying these words, aren't I? Aren't we? Probably. Well, it's, it also, <laughs> we, we it's also be monetized. Well, I know, first, but we're going to get like, deprioritized. Yeah. That's what I mean. The algorithm's you not going to pick us. You want to jack up the algorithm? Uh, yeah. Uh, aliens, AI, <laughs> transsexuals, Elon Musk, and uh, crypto. Uh, yeah. No, not, not crypto anymore. That's way. Yeah, that's way down. Don't say the one that ends with F and ends in T. That's what, hey, we're going to get. Well, uh, taken down. Well, it is. It is interesting with what you're saying too, because like we know we just had the announcement for Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, uh, and he's basically just out here on podcasts actively saying the CIA killed my uncle, right? Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. Like this has always been the conspiratorial thing. We had the Tucker Carlson clips that came out uh, a few weeks ago on this stuff uh, because of the, um, the uh, whistleblower, right. That give gave them a bunch of, a bunch of information. Interesting where public sentiment is going around with the uh, intelligence. Oh, well, yeah, Ron Paul the other day. Ron yeah. Paul saying yeah. that the end of the empire was actually the JFK assassination. Well, and, right? and it's not like we don't have evidence that intelligence communities can run away from the authorities that they're supposed to be serving. A uh, good example the leaked documents recently that came out that we covered a little bit last week. One of those parts actually dives into uh, American intelligence guessing and, and talking about how their belief is that Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, was actually encouraging and participating in the riots and protests of March of this year in Israel against Netanyahu, their president, or, or uh, uh, that's not the right word, um, prime, minister. prime minister. Yeah. So, I mean, think about that for a minute. I mean, this obviously it's not showing anything. It doesn't give us new information about our intelligence agencies, but the idea that intelligence agency could run away from their actual authority and do things that they don't know about because it's all black hat anyways. That's wild. Well, and, but also then adding on, we have all these cases with the FBI, like the governor Whitmer kidnapping case and all these things, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's all these issues with entrapment that are going on of like the FBI infiltrating organizations and prompting them to do things and stuff like, like these things are happening all the time. Right. right? Right. And one of the things is because it's the intelligence community and, you know, a federal police force, it kind of sits below the surface, right? Because like, as soon as you're talking about it, you have to have a degree of uncertainty and people don't like uncertainty, right? So it's hard to lead someone through this without sounding like a crackpot, but you're like, I'm just reacting to the things I'm reading here. And I feel like I'm starting to sound like a crazy person, but I'm really just trying to see what is true and trying to connect you know, what is actually going on, a coherent story about our intelligence community and what, what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and add to that the Twitter files, right. what the intelligence community is doing well, in, it, in social media. I mean, well, like there's so many parts of that that is just so, I mean, dangerous from American civil liberty standpoint, but also from a foreign policy disaster standpoint. Well, and the Twitter file stuff should not have been a surprise to people. Like I remember reading, there was all these different articles that were coming out pretty much from like 2012 to 2016 that was like, 
this this CIA agent was found to be have infiltrated Twitter and was manipulating the algorithm in in around Afghanistan to to promote you know this story or that story to you know like these things have been happening all the time if you've just been paying attention like the the Twitter file stuff shouldn't have been as surprising as it was this has been known for years that this stuff was happening that the CIA was infiltrating these these organizations absolutely I mean I mean and I think that known for years is probably true within a certain subset of society um, that we are all probably a part of. But for maybe a lot of people, you know, these things, these things are more fringe, you know, and it is, it is shocking when this stuff comes out, but it doesn't have to be because there are people out there talking about it. There are really credible journalists digging into the stuff and, and releasing it like Cy Hirsch right now, like, like Michael Schellenberger, like Matt Taibbi, who's finding himself in a very, very precarious situation uh, in light of, you know, these congressional hearings over the Twitter files. Well, on, on the Cy Hirsch thing, that, what's interesting about that, the leaked documents actually confirm one of the things that Cy Hirsch was com- was uh, being criticized for. Cy Hirsch, in one of his blog posts, uh, says, we have troops in Ukraine. And I was like, we don't have troops in Ukraine. Are you crazy? And these leaked documents actually suggest that we have substantial troop presence in Ukraine, not to mention uh, other troops in just 150 miles away in Poland. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, in, in several brigades that are there now. Now, now Cy, because that, that's not confirmed in the leaked documents, but he was right about troops being in Ukraine. Right. So he he has a track record now of of things that he has said ha- having been substantiated. I think it's probably time that more of the mainstream media, more people start to take what he's saying seriously. Because I mean, he's just dropping bombshell after bombshell. Seems like yes. And and that's one of the things is there's so much at risk when it comes to our reputation internationally because we've become so dogmatic about Ukraine where we're willing to say, oh, this well-represented reporter that has done so much for American journalism, he's crazy now. He's now, he's now the same as Alex Jones. There's no difference between those two people, (laughs) right? And that's, that is, that's a, that's a crazy uh, shibboleth, the zeitgeist change. But additionally that this is actually not just us saying this, the South Koreans are saying this, right? Uh, also in the leaked documents, the South Koreans pretty much came out. We were like, Hey, South Korea, can we have some of these weapon systems we really like? And they're like, I don't, we don't want you to give them Ukraine. We're neutral in that war. Like, no, we won't give you Ukraine. And the South Koreans are like, we don't trust you. Yeah. We're not going to, and, and like, of course these are diplomatic cables. So we would never know that except that this kid released it. I mean, it's just so absolutely wild that, our reputation internationally has been so degraded by, I mean, previous administrations, but this administration, uh, when it comes to specifically in the war of Ukraine, that we are not dealing in reality. And other kind of nations are like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Yeah. I found it fascinating in one of Cy Hirsch's recent articles where, where he talks about how certain parties that are in that inner circle talk about the Biden administration as, as if they just don't know what they're doing. Hmm. Like their campaign staffers who managed to get a guy elected, got themselves into these high-ranking positions and aren't qualified to maintain those positions and are, and are the people that have the, the the codes to the nukes, right? You know, and, and things of that that nature. And it's like, okay, that's pretty concerning, I would say, you know, to have unqualified people at the top making decisions that could potentially throw the world into World War III or further into World War III if you think we're already in it. I mean, that was what, what Trump did so poorly on. He was such, it was such a leaky White House in part because he actually put people in charge into positions where they could didn't necessarily share his MAGA philosophy. And then that's why he kept on having to lose people over and over and over again. Additionally, that he had so many leaks. 
in part because he was trying to put qualified people in and all those qualified people just happened to not, you know, want a job and not want to work for, you know, the Trump administration probably. So you're saying the Biden administration is actually doing that well, that they're putting people in who are philosophical. <laughs> they're not getting, they're not getting, maybe they're not getting as many leaks because they're making that decision. Sure. Right. I mean, like that's, that's a crazy thing about it. We are so off the rails that the safest decision for the administration is to put unqualified people in because he can at least trust them not to leak information. Well, it's funny. The leakiest person in the Biden administration is Joe Biden. <laughs> 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 well, and also remember, there was all the stuff that went down with generals actively lying to Donald Trump about what was going on in Afghanistan and places yeah. like that, right? Right. Too. right. So and I, is, was that a diaper joke? Was that like an adult diaper yeah. joke? Or you was that, that uh, was that just him going off script? It was an Alzheimer's <laughs> joke. It was a dimension <laughs> so joke. Funny. It was a diapers <laughs> joke. It was a lot of jokes there. Uh, <laughs> you can take it however you want. Savage I'll take credit for all of them. <laughs> you, should, you should say it depends. It depends. <laughs> oh, shit, Henri. <laughs> That's a shit joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. How do we even recover after that? That was beautiful. Uh, let's watch the Young Turks lose their minds yeah. as they realize climate change regulations have a cost. Please. Yeah. And you can turn California her down too. She's a little shrill. Out of gas powered cars, and they'll probably do the same thing with uh, gas stoves. Is they just ban the sale of any new gas-powered cars or any new gas stoves. And so the technology that you have in your home, the gas stove that you have in your home, if it breaks, not only are you not able to buy a new one, but it gets increasingly more difficult to just repair it. You get what I'm saying? And so, like, I that's get it, but that's a bump. That's the normal bumps in the road as you transition to things. I know, but Jake, like, don't minimize the financial burdens associated with these things, okay? Because, no, like, I am literally freaking the fuck out about the charging station thing. I'm like, it's gonna cost. We're gonna Did take they- out a massive fucking loan to pay for it. We're not getting any help from the fucking government on that. The I- family show. Did you, did you guys ask? Is there any tax credits? No, but seriously. Seriously, there's no government help at all to Jake, transition, you guys? I don't give a fuck about tax credits. No, no, I'm saying for the HOA. Like, no, so I, there's the- been no talk of tax credits. I haven't seen anything about tax credits. I should look into it. Maybe there are tax credits, but I don't give a fuck about tax credits because you have to shell out cash, okay? Like, I just, I want to do something in response to climate change. That is not my my issue here. My issue is how, like, we're forced to make all these changes that are a, a financial burden, a giant Ooh. inconvenience with like little to no help. And the, the solution from the government in terms of like, no, no, you get you get financial benefits for doing this is fucking tax credits. No, I don't want I don't want the tax credits. I will give me the money. Give you give me the money. <laughs> OK, OK, stop. don't tell I don't me. Want to watch <laughs> I'm just laughing at David. <laughs> she could have replaced me on several episodes of the Liberty Portal podcast. It's so agree. nice to have Anna Kasperian, Kasperian in fact, we, on our side. We've we've had it suggested that we bring a female in. Maybe we just replace you with her. But yeah, that would probably. I mean, better looking at least. Definitely. But uh, I, mean, I, I mean, she is absolutely right. It is exactly the cost that we've been talking about. 100%. The burden of climate regulation falls on the least well off first. Right. Well, but I mean, in this case, you know, she's not the least well off, but it's a good example of. You know, she's somebody who's coming from a, a position of privilege and an elite. She can, she's very wealthy. And this is her reaction to the type of policies that she and other people in her camp have been advocating for forever. And they don't, they don't care about the people who are actually in a position of financial hardship who have to deal with 
rising energy costs and you know the 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 fallout from from all the the regulation and you know putting somebody who's who's actually in a position of you know living paycheck to paycheck i mean somebody who's who's put having a hard time putting food on the table versus somebody like this but you know as soon as it affects her now she gives a fuck you know <laughs> several fucks yeah we definitely should have uh we definitely went from the pg-13 to, to rated r or somewhere i don't know how many f words you can say before you're there yeah well this podcast is just generally marketed as explicit so uh, okay. not too yeah. all right no problem yeah uh, we'll, we'll put a little warning at the beginning, maybe. <laughs> don't watch this with your kids, or, or do I don't know, whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, wow. I, I mean, I I think it's I think it's encouraging, right? Because you're looking at someone who is dyed in the wool, blue liberal Democrat, actually recognizing the economic implications of some of their policy decisions, and maybe realizing like we need to approach these things a little bit more diligently and cautiously with consideration to the side effects of those decisions. It's not just about, you know, this, this pie in the sky. I want to do everything that's the best for the planet, or I want to do everything that's best for, you know, poor people. I mean, obviously those two things are in this case, directly opposed to one another in many, in many instances. So I think this is good. It's, it's recognizing patterns and, and coming around to a new way of viewing the world. And I think it's a great thing. Add a girl, Anna. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't know that that she's really you know gaining any kind of sense of awareness. Like if if this didn't affect her, I don't think she would, you know, be having that reaction. But how do most people? If if she actually, if she could take the burden and put it on somebody else, if she could like, well, that's literally clip, what she's asking to do. Right, she's in, like, in, government needs to pay for this. In it's the just clip, like she's asking true. government yeah. to pay for it. You know, her and, solution is still wrong, but the yeah. recognition is there. Yeah, right? like she's halfway there. And how do people come to a different? way of viewing the world other than the world impacting them in a certain way right i mean it's hard for me to rationalize and understand the the day-to-day -day struggles of someone living in abject poverty in a third world country because i don't live that life but as soon as i were there as soon as you know i was put in that situation i would have that that immediate understanding and the the interest uh, and motivation to change that right yeah. so hopefully it's a yeah, i'm not we're not suggesting she's going to become a libertarian tomorrow and and yeah. and start writing books about why climate change anything can happen yeah but i do think it is encouraging to at least see a recognition from a major climate you know activist that these things have a cost and they are borne by everyday people that's a good thing i don't know how much she makes i have no clue but i'm just i think they do fairly well yeah i don't know I mean, they have like, they have like they, only they like a thousand, a thousand more backers. So. You got like a thousand more subscribers than we do. I don't know. They got millions of subscribers. <laughs> what are you talking about, Dave? <laughs> I don't know. Are you sure their ratings are that good? They're still a cable news show, right? They, they used no. to be like one of the biggest, they, they used to be the biggest like news show on YouTube. Like right. they were like the pioneers of like YouTube yeah. news shows. As far as I understand, they got billionaire backers. They lose money, but they, they got deep pockets. Yeah. Well, we are now accepting applications for billionaire backers. You might be listening or know anybody. Are, are you a billionaire backer? <laughs> we, we at Liberty we Portal need you. <laughs> yes. Uh, all the billionaires come our way. Only uh, we won't kowtow to your globalist agenda. Sorry. <laughs> well, the but the, that's kind of the big thing with this is like she's recognizing it right now as Henri said because it's affecting her right now. But when it comes to the next thing. Like she's just going to go along with the next thing because it's like the pie in the sky, good policy that's going to make me feel good, but it's going to be at no cost to her. It's the same thing as like I, I was I was listening to Piers Morgan, you know, British broadcaster, 
and he he's been kind of on this apology of like, yeah, I got COVID wrong. I like I the science changed all that stuff. But now we got to listen to what the government's saying about Ukraine. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, your instincts were wrong in the beginning and your instincts are wrong again. And your instincts are going to be continue to be wrong. You're going to get, uh, you know, you're going to get it right two years too late kind of a thing. Like, mm. and that's what all these people are always like. They always get it wrong too late or they get it right after the fact. Right. And then there's like no recognition that it was like, yeah, no, I just, everybody was saying it at the time. Well, I mean, it's know? like they have to say it now, you know, they, I mean, it's like, it's like an act of saving face at this point. And there are people out there who, who hear that and it makes sense, I guess, in some way, psychologically, you're like, oh, well, he's acknowledging he was wrong then. So still, you know, he's, he's right about most other things and I'll, I'll continue to listen. I, he gets the credit for yeah. you know, recognizing when he was wrong and, and, you know, shifting on that issue, but then he just shifts to being wrong on the next issue and people buy into that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's totally possible. Is there ever a point though? I mean, I know that media personalities may be a little bit different because they're in many ways really fed their talking points, right? Like, and I can't speak for the young Turks or anybody in particular, but we've all seen the, the videos circulating on social media you know, of all the local news channels talking about like the dangerous for democracy thing. Right. And there's like 25 right, right. or 50 different frames of right. yeah, local news all across the country. And they're all saying the exact same script. To what degree are the billionaire backers telling them, hey, we need you to talk about this, not talk about this. A good example of it is, you know, what happened with Tucker Carlson and the, the footage from January 6th. He had that first night where it was like, all huge news, all this new footage coming out with the shaman and, you know, really shifting the narrative, like visually of what was purported to have happened, broadening it, not saying that one thing didn't happen, another thing did, but just illustrating that there were a lot of different things that happened. He was going to release additional footage the next day. And the rumor is that Rupert Murdoch applied pressure for him to not release any additional footage. And that's a rumor, you know, it's speculation, but, but that was the, 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 the story, and he didn't release any additional footage. Mm. Although he said, we are going to bring this to you tomorrow, more footage, it's going to be big, you're never going to believe it, it's going to change everything. Nothing happened. Yikes. So that I didn't know they that. do get pressure applied. All these people do. Oh, sure. I mean, it's got to send them with advertisers, advertisers drop out. No, good thing Zesty is such a great advertiser that backs are They're not going anywhere, man. <laughs> but Hopefully. Uh, you know, it, it advertises another one and then editorials. I mean, just straight up editorials are a huge one. Uh, I love this Cy Hirsch. I've said him quite a few times this podcast and overall through the podcast. But he said, the world would be better off if editors weren't a thing. Hmm. Right? Because so many reporters want to say something, but they can't. Right. And, because it gets blocked by someone who has right. an ulterior motive or a perverse incentive mm -hmm. to revealing the truth. Whose right. job it is to edit things out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, and there's also a question of like, yeah, how much of it is like a calculated phenomenon versus an emergent phenomenon? Um, like, I know Dave and I, we, we've both brought up James Burnham on multiple occasions on this podcast, an uh, important political figure that no one knows who he is. Um, but he has this concept of the circulating elite. And a lot of these things are just like everybody's in this social club and they all promote kind of one idea. If you don't have that idea, you're not in the social club anymore. Um so it's just like how much of it is just people kind of like clicking together and they all, they all follow each other on Twitter and there's a lot of a, you know, and, and all of the sameness of all the news stories end up being purported because of that, because they're all just following each other and copying each other. Yeah. Interesting bridge from there. Buzzfeed died yeah. this week. Buzzfeed news. Buzzfeed news. I think Let's we could cheers pour, to that. Pour yeah. One out for our <laughs> 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. We've lasted longer than BuzzFeed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're still around. At least uh, more uh, (laughs) past this particular week of 2023. Um, (laughs) So what's interesting about that is the overall architecture. I haven't heard anyone say this before, but the first thing I thought was they got out-competed by the New York Times and Washington Post. So here's what happened. And and for my my story, this is completely speculation, but my story is you had established media was mostly statist, but otherwise not like an arm of a political party for most of my adulthood. Mm -hmm. And then at some point when the internet started to get big enough where blogs and organizations like BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed, the Daily Beast, what was the one that got in trouble with Peter Thiel? Forgetting their name. Uh, um, not like Gizmodo. He like or, sued them into non-existence. I just remember Gawker. Gawker. His, that's what Gawker. I was talking about. Yeah, Gawker. Gawker. Uh, uh, all these news organizations suddenly started to take up space in a very partisan way. Drudge was the other way. Drudge was that for the right, mm-hmm. right? A news aggregating website that had a right word spin. The internet started competing with the traditional media companies who then, whose response was, we need to outcompete them by becoming them as a mainstream media outlet. And that's why we've seen all these traditional media outlets, which were traditionally, like I said, statist, but not partisan, move to being outwardly partisan. And now that they've done that, all those people who could, would have gone to BuzzFeed for their outwardly partisan stuff, just go to the Washington Post and the New York Times and those ones for actual better reporting. And, you know, <laughs> so they got out polarized by a, an existing player with just better economies of scale and yeah. infrastructure to actually capitalize. On. Yes. Wow. That's my, that's my that's theory. theory. And now they're going out of business. Yeah. Wild. I mean, I wonder how much more consolidation we'll see because obviously in this recessionary environment, we know advertising is down across the board. So, <laughs> uh. Okay. All right. So, so we're going to pull up a tweet here from, uh, he who must not be named Andrew Tate (laughs) by Buzzfeed news and turn it around. Question mark. The poll 63.4% do it. Tate 36%. No, let it, let him die. Buzz Tate. Buzz Tate. The first comment. (laughs) Turd says Buzz Tate. Oh man. (sighs) I feel like somebody should do a top 10 listicle of Best moments from BuzzFeed. Wasn't that, wasn't that their thing? We put that on Liberty Portal list. Yeah. Listicles. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I was never really a huge BuzzFeed consumer, although I think I probably took like a quiz or two. You know, those were kind of a thing for a minute on Facebook. I'm baiting myself, obviously. But oh man, wow. I don't know. I think we see. I think we probably see more more go down. You know, could happen. I hope. I hope it happens. I mean, frankly, I think I think podcasting and and Substack have really, really changed the game for media. You know, people can it's so stratified. You can get whatever you want mm. from the internet for for your news. You can hear it from a variety of different sources that you can sort of aggregate your own idea of what that news actually means instead of just taking this one narrative as well, this is the gospel truth. I think it's I think it's been a great thing. I mean, and journalists like like Matt Taibbi and Schellenberger and Barry Weiss and those guys are that are doing great and you know investigative journalism independently are the tip of the spear Mm. 
I mean, as is evidenced by the, how much they're being attacked. Right. Absolutely. And, th- and there's the, there's the incentive structure of direct pay, right? Where I pay, you know, Seymour Hirsch to tell me more things, right? right? Or Matt Taibbi or Schellenberger. And then there's advertiser pay, which has those perverse incentives we're talking about. If, you, if you're getting your payment directly from the people who listen to you, that is a much better system for maintaining your reputation, for caring about that, for making sure you don't make mistakes. I mean, that is way more accountable mm-hmm. and a much better economy um, incentive. Mm-hmm. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I do see a lot of good journalism on Substack. Uh, the, the podcast space seems to be just so saturated right now, unfortunately. Well, it's yeah. really broad. I mean, the, there's so much variety. Yeah, it's going to, you know, it's challenging to, to rise to the top for sure. Yeah. Um, but we're going to do it. By <laughs> With your help. Water. With your help. Like share. <laughs> yeah. We just got to survive the next podcast crash and, you know, just come out the other side and rise like a phoenix. From well, the nice system. thing about it is we, um, we don't make any money. Right. So we can't, so lose we have anybody. nothing to lose. That's right. <laughs> really literally at rock bottom. Well, right now. Are, are, aren't we kind of in the podcast crash now? Cause it wasn't uh, everybody making a podcast during COVID and now our, like we just got to make it to the next bull market of podcasts, right? Exactly. Right. Our, our backers have put tens of dollars into this project and, our backers are Joe. <laughs> yeah. I was say, I've put a lot more than tens. Of I know, I <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, as far as for the success of this podcast, I think it's just one really good short away. That's what I feel like. I mean, there's some of these things have gone so not viral, but almost there. I mean, yeah. 35,000 views, almost 40,000 yeah, views. Bad. I mean, that's not a small thing. That's not. If I could just get my act together uh, and talk better, we would be there. Already. We need you to just. Keep dropping. <laughs> so Instagram needs more conspiracies. So yeah. I guess we got some good conspiracies in this episode. TikTok, yeah. I don't know. TikTok's is is freaky. It, it, it likes certain things, and then it'll turn off on those things. Then it'll like other things. I don't know the the algorithms. Everyone is slightly different. Twitter, I have yet to figure out. Twitter is just kind of it kind of scares all, me. I, think, I feel like it's it's a lot different now that Elon's taking it over too. That's like true. The algorithms. Yeah, you, know, you got to game it differently. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, Elon just released the algorithm for public oh, yeah. open algorithm now. And that was one of the things he said he polled on Twitter, like, should I do this before I buy Twitter? And now he's actually doing he it. He was always going to do it. He, he yeah. was talking about it from the beginning. Yeah. Like, he's but always an open source guy. What's interesting about that is like, that is an interesting market signal. So like way back first episode, I was like, hey, you know, it might be a good thing, might be a bad thing, but at least it's a free society thing. We're not using the government to regulate Twitter, which is a good thing. We mm-hmm. should celebrate that. Mm-hmm. We could be seeing the beginnings of a very good trend if other social media companies, if Twitter gets the the, the gain in trust that it, you know, its trust back while all these all those social media companies, you know, continue to decline in trust because they have opened up their algorithm. That will lead to pressure for other organizations to do that. That is the power of one entrepreneur putting their own money on the line to make the world a better place uh, as far as for trust and transparency in our in our institutions. It's a good thing. Do you need a 100%. napkin or something, bro? We'll move on. On reason got a drinking problem. I'll be right back. So, something to add to that while, while Joe's handling that is um, like investors are calling it, calling it the Elon effect is especially when you have with Elon Musk, like canning 80% of employees at Twitter and things like that, all all these other investors, they're like, oh, there's a downturn. Let's cut like 13%. And then Elon just comes in and is like 80%. And then right after that, you see like Facebook's like 50%. (laughs) Like everybody's following suit. Wait, Facebook cut 50%? 
Uh, something like that. I can double check it after I'm done talking oh, this, wow. but a bunch of these companies afterwards came in and just started canning a ton of people after Elon Musk did the, did the uh, initial firing. But so many of these companies have been captured by like the managerial class within the companies where like the CEOs themselves have, have kind of like lost control or they've like ceded control and responsibility of these companies. I think this is where a lot of the wokeness is coming in all these corporations. And right now Elon's coming in and just being like, no, nah, we're doing it my way. And then, and you also saw like, uh, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase, he put out that big letter and was like, hey, if you're not part of our mission, you can you can leave. Right. Like we're seeing more and more of that coming from like <laughs> to quote uh, Burnham again, from the bourgeois capitalists versus the managerial capitalists. We're seeing that kind of trend starting to take place. So like VC culture is kind of coming back. We're starting to watch, you know, it. And I think Elon's kind of leading the wave of that right now, which interesting. is interesting. Yeah. Attaboy, Elon. Michael Schellenberger is staring at me very intently right now, and it's kind of freaking me out. <laughs> He's got a steely look on his face. Do we want to pull the hard video? transition? <laughs> hard, hard pivot. Well, do you, do, do you think, want to set up the video? I don't. Th- I don't think it is a hard pivot here because, you know, well, so obviously, Matt, um, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi have been closely working with Elon, right? And in, in all the Twitter files releases, uh along with Barry Weiss, whom this uh, Stacy Plaskett's representative from the Virgin Islands called a, a threesome, or maybe it was someone else that called him a threesome. It, it, was, it was a different senator. Yeah. That, yeah. But in any case, these guys are doing like real journalistic work and, and really killing it and, and going into this stuff, knowing that they're going to be facing backlash, but I don't think that they expected what they've gotten. So let's go ahead and listen to this uh, piece from Michael Schellenberger. Last month, Matt Taibbi and I testified to Congress about the existence of a censorship industrial complex. The night before, the U.S. government's Federal Trade Commission sent an extraordinary letter to Twitter owner Elon Musk. The first FTC letter to Twitter after the first set of Twitter files, the very first question was, who are the journalists you're talking to? Demanding that he, quote, identify all journalists involved in the reporting of the Twitter files. Then at the very moment that members of Congress were accusing Matt and me of being fake journalists. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. An IRS agent visited Matt's home. They still haven't explained why. Happily, the attacks backfired. The members of Congress went too far and their deliberate or accidental use of sexual innuendos. So you're in this as a threesome? Awkward made them a laughing stock on social media. But it turns out that they weren't done. Two weeks ago, I heard from a whistleblower that the censorship industry would shortly retaliate against us. It turned out that at that very moment, MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan was berating Matt Taibbi on air. The man who used to gleefully heap abuse on the outrage industrial complex on Fox now appears regularly on that very propaganda network he once so wonderfully lampooned. Shortly after, Hassan and a chorus of others in the mainstream news media falsely claimed that they had debunked the Twitter files. Now, the same member of Congress who called us so-called journalists is threatening Taibbi with prison time for supposedly lying to Congress. Representative Stacey Plaskett sent Matt a letter that recycles the same false MSNBC allegations that we debunked and ends by saying he could face five years imprisonment. Never in my life have I seen members of Congress threaten an expert witness with prison time. For the record, Matt's statements were accurate. A small error was made in a tweet, and as soon as Matt learned of it, he corrected it, as all ethical journalists would do. 
And now Lee Fong, formerly of The Intercept and now writing at Substack, has thoroughly debunked MSNBC's claims. What's more, Fong discovered that Hassan has repeatedly engaged in dis and misinformation himself, including plagiarism. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan authored a column in defense of spanking children, no harm in smacking, that is nearly a word-for-word -word duplication of the article went to spank, published two years earlier in US News and World Report. The bottom line is this. The Twitter files blew the lid off the censorship industrial complex, and its leaders are retaliating, not just to scare us off, but to scare away other journalists. But here's the thing. They don't scare us. They energize us. We are undertaking a major effort to expose the connections between the censorship industrial complex and the military and intelligence communities in the so-called Five Eyes nations of the US, UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. We are hiring several people to do the research and turn the table on the would-be totalitarians. All of this is happening at the same time that Facebook is cracking down on people who are raising questions about the war in Ukraine. The individuals who come from spy agencies who are now demanding censorship of their fellow citizens are breaking the law. They know we have caught them in the act and they are scared. They should be scared. We can't do this alone. If you know something, say something. You may work in a government agency or for a think tank or university working on so-called misinformation. We need to hear from you. We will protect all confidences. We have already heard from several whistleblowers and we need more. Just yesterday, an IRS whistleblower came forward to say that the IRS was giving special treatment to President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Courage is contagious. And if you're still not a subscriber to Public, now is the time to join. If you would like to make a larger tax-deductible donation, please visit environmentalprogress backslash give. As always, please email me at my encrypted email address, michaelschellenberger at proton.me. <clears throat> Matt and I testified to Congress about the existence of a censorship industrial complex. We were just getting started. We won't rest until we dismantle it and bury its parts deep underground. Now that's a white pill. Yeah. He's right. Courage is contagious. Yeah. That's a good line. It is a good line. One yeah. of the th things that really blows my mind about that is the so-called error is uh, as far as I could track on that interview and I watched it. We just didn't talk about it because it seemed at the time like petty. The, the tweet that he referenced? Yeah, the, 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 the thing that the MSNBC host actually caught him that wasn't accurate. He made a bunch of accusations that turned out to be complete BS. But the one was an acronym, CIP versus CIPA. That's it. That's the big, could spend five years in prison error. <laughs> no way. You're <laughs> kidding not me. not kidding you. No. <laughs> so that's the only one that wasn't had at least was unclear that it was an error and or the MSNBC OS was just outright wrong. Well, yeah, I was under the impression from based on this video that that Representative Plaskett was using MSNBC's reporting to say yep. that uh, Taibbi had lied to Congress right. and that they had debunked it. But was MSNBC just citing that 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 tweet? Yes. CIP, CIPA yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah. Because really? one is a government agency and the other one's a nonprofit. Ah, right. Okay. And so it's like, oh, well, it you're, you said it was a government agency, but it's actually this nonprofit. It's like, no, actually, I meant the nonprofit. I just put in the wrong acronym. So they basically. So he were, deleted the tweet and then uh, that so should have been it. Yeah. Getting scrutiny for a typo. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's what they got. That's all they could get. I mean, that's pretty amazing. There's been a lot of words written on the Twitter files. It would have been easy to make a mistake. Yeah. 
especially with the time frame and just him being a small crew. I mean, that's not, that, mistakes happen. Of course. But man, like all they could get was a typo. That's wild. I mean, it speaks to their credibility. It speaks to their diligence, their attention to detail. And, and you know, I've heard Taibi and Schellenberger both on various shows talk about how it kept them up at night before they released these things because they understood the gravity of the situation and how important it was that they not make any mistakes. And this is exactly why, mm. <laughs> you know, because going after powers this big, this, this powerful, yeah. this deep, they're going to come after you. And obviously they, they have, and they are, but I don't, I, I think it's important that we, that see this share stuff like that, do whatever we can in our daily lives to support it. Right. I don't know if, if it, you know, I haven't looked into the the public thing he was talking about. Do you guys know no. what that is? No. I mean, I, and I haven't looked into the, you know, financial giving, but like, I mean, what what else can can everyday people do to support efforts against censorship? Like, share, comment, and subscribe to the Liberty Portal podcast. No, uh, I, I set I, you up for that one. That was so good. <laughs> well, I mean, as far as like digital activism is a real thing, right? And can making a meme can make change change minds, right? Like, there's lots of things the everyday person can do to spread ideas and try to do so in an entertaining and funny way. That's the best idea. So, I mean, I I I um. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but there's tremendous potential in most people that is unrealized because they're worried about criticism. That's a courage issue. Or they're worried about um, some consequence of speaking now. You know, if I, if I say the wrong thing, I might get fired or something like that. Um, and, but I don't, I don't think that's most of it. I think most people just don't realize they have a voice. And if they just had a little bit of encouragement, we could change a lot of things. For sure. I mean, I know with this podcast, I was afraid to get on camera because I didn't want to lose clients, right? I, I run a business that would directly affect my ability to feed myself. If I were to say something and piss somebody off and they were to stop working with me, I have yet to lose one single client as a result of this, probably because the show doesn't go very <laughs> far. It's so we're huge. in obscurity. <laughs> uh, I'm reveling in obscurity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something I'll add to uh, David's comment of just make a meme. I will just say that there is somebody that might be facing 10 years in jail for uh, making a meme. <laughs> true. Whoa. Very D true. Douglas Mackey did the uh, vote your, uh, or text your vote in for oh, Hillary yeah. Clinton in 2016 and might be facing oh. 10 years in so jail. So it was, it, that's, was, it that's, was a joke, it, right? Yeah, it's a joke, but that's, I mean, disinformation about elections is very regulated. You got to be very careful about that. Did he spend dollars on it? Spend money on it? Or no. did he just... Put it he on just 4chan. Made a meme and it got shared. I, I, I think he yeah. just made a meme and got shared. It was like text. Wow. Your vote I'm not. Text, I'm not sure. That's interesting because most stuff has to do with dollar spins on that. Most of the leverage points, like the anchor points for that sort of thing, isn't what you say. It's the dollars you spend in saying. Right. Which I think so, is why this is so. That's pretty wild. Groundbreaking wow. is that there was no financial component that I'm aware of. Mm. You maybe could find otherwise, but I'm pretty sure yeah. there wasn't. He just made a funny thing. <laughs> Or like, you know, don't forget it to vote tomorrow <laughs> on Wednesday, you yeah. know, like some, and obviously right. like, yeah, you have to be careful because you don't want to disenfranchise people by giving them the wrong information. But, but really who, who though, who would think that you could text your vote in? Like, I don't know. Uh. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. 2023. Maybe, wow. Maybe, at this point it was 2016, right? Just some guy. Wasn't there, wasn't there somebody who did a pretty much identical thing, um, but on the other side? Who's oh, not, I'm sure. 
not facing the same. I I'm vaguely sure. remember that being a thing. Like I, I remember the hubbub about this in 2016, but it, that was, that was so long ago. That was six years ago. That's wild. Yeah. I got to wonder about that. That's that, that's going to be an interesting free speech case. Yeah. Check that out. I'm curious. Okay, so maybe it's not completely risk-free to make memes, but just, so, just don't mess with elections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just make memes about other stuff, and make, you'll be fine. Make memes about Seymour Hersh. He needs exactly. More exactly. Or, All right, you guys want to talk about the transgender thing in Montana? Yeah, I want to hear more about this. What's going on? All right, so a legislator named Zoe Zephyr um, was, what's the word I'm looking for? Censored? Isn't that, it's not that that's right, the right word. Is it censured? Word. Censured. That's what I was looking for. Uh, by, uh, well, called the, the censor, the censors was called for, uh, by the Montana Freedom Caucus it was a new organization. You take the federal Freedom Caucus and they've started a bunch of state chapters around the country. Um, the Freedom Caucus is a bunch of legislators who are otherwise pretty conservative, more conservative than the average Republican who started in the, you know, U.S. Congress is now has all these chapters around the country. Um, so what, uh, basically what happened was, Zoe was making a case for against the minor transition surgery bill, right? Uh, and she basically said, yeah, I used the right pronoun. She basically said- Access to the medical care- That. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if we want to yeah, watch I the guess, video. I, I mean, but, but basically what she said is like, hey, when you are praying at the next invocation, because they do a, a prayer at the beginning of all the sessions, the, when you're doing your next one, hope you look down your hands and realize there's blood on them because their case is that gender transition surgery for minors is really important to avoid suicides of young people. Yeah. The quote I read was that she said it's tantamount to torture to, to, to prevent yeah. a child from getting right. gender. And care. of course, a lot of Republicans were like, ah, and like got very upset about that. Um, and I, I, you know, I get it. I and mean, it's obviously it's, it's pretty harsh rhetoric. Um, that said, I think if it was a pro-life issue. I'm not sure the exact same people wouldn't hesitate to say the same thing. True. You have to I look mean, at it from both ways. Yeah, that speech is, I mean, when we're talking about the welfare of children, we get a lot of emotions. I get that. And um, we're talking about the welfare of babies. I'm like, pro-life people can get, I mean, uh, a potential candidate, uh, let um, a Senate candidate in Montana uh, got quoted as saying, you know, being asked about something and he transitioned over to a pro-life point of view and basically said, I can't believe one party is so committed to murdering unborn children. And, you know, of course, the left one, I can't believe he said that. And I was like, well, that's been the position of pro-life people that it's murder for 50 years. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like, you, this is the first pro-life person you ever met. Oh, really? <laughs> so, like, I, I don't, I, 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 I obviously it was over top. It, it was, it's a little more over the top, too, than you usually use for decorum on the, on the floor of the house. So uh, that was the argument was that that was too, too yeah. forward. And basically what happens, the center, I don't know, the actual, like, you know, formal movement happened. What happened was the day after that, the speaker refused to recognize her when she pressed the button to be reconciled. Mm. Additionally to that, one of the things that really triggered the left was in the calling for, you know, basically her censorship, uh, the Freedom Caucus put out a press release that just misgendered them the whole time. Mm. Uh, and that was, that obviously like- It's like, the worst thing you can do. Well, I mean, it's rude. Right. And I think they would probably feel like, well, she was being rude, so we can be rude. And then it's like, well, now we're in a rude a spot. Of a, yeah, tit for tat. But, kind but of these are adults. These are legislators. We give these guys the authorization to create laws to force people to do things. That's just pretty wild, right? I mean, like, sure. I think decorum is is a reasonable restraint, right? Like somewhere in there, it's got to be like, here's the bounds, you know, because uh, we have to be colleagues. We have to work together. We have to figure out ways to make laws happen that protect people's rights. Right. Um, well, the question, yeah. I guess, is 
just like with free speech, what what speech is protected? Can Zoe say blood is on your hands? Can a pro-life legislator say the same thing about the left? Or or is that I mean, is that where what's what does the rule say? Do we know what In, the rule? Well, yeah, there's there, there are things around uh, like around decorum. Right. But they're broad and kind of vague in, in my opinion. But I, I, I would say that. Yeah. And on Twitter, sure. Do say what you want to say. Like no one's going to stop you. But on the uh, but on the floor of the house, it's very different. Right. And they, they have to I think it's reasonable to request a certain amount of cultural decorum because otherwise you just I mean, it's already like it's hard to describe what a 90 day session is every two years with 3000 bills. Like that's an, it's a very intense experience. So, um, oftentimes temperatures do get really high. You're talking about very divisive and complicated issues on a very short time frame with lots of interest groups pushing you on how you're going to vote. I mean, like I, I get it. A lot of legislators are in pressure cookers, mm -hmm. especially now we have one week left. Mm -hmm. And so like all these bills are trying to get through the process and they're trying to move the mechanisms of, you know, power to make these things happen. Uh, you know, it, people just get out over the skis. I, I think this will eventually blow over. And obviously it's being taken advantage of by both sides. Republicans are fundraising on it. So are the Democrats. Oh, well, I mean, as is with all the divisive issues, right? Yes. They're the, the ones that bring in the bucks. Yes. Uh, but ultimately the trans um, surgery bill very likely to pass. And so this is just pertaining to surgery. Uh, for minors. For minors. For minors. Yeah. Right. It doesn't, doesn't affect adults. So you could still, in all other aspects begin to transition a child if that was their wish, but they just couldn't get operated on until they're- Or, or hormones, or, uh, just or any hormones. amount of like medical intervention for gender dysmorphia. Which, I mean, the hormones are effectively, I mean, they're, they're, they're a one-way street, right? You can't go back once you go on hormone blockers. You can't just go through puberty again. Mm -hmm. If you block puberty, you don't get one. And so those children would, would just never mature in that way. And also from what I understand, they would never be able to eventually achieve orgasm. Really? Yeah. Whoa. That's yeah, my you, understanding of it. You can, you can look it up. You can fact check me, but I've heard that Damn. and read that several places. Yeah. And I know there's fertility. Very, I've heard rare. there's fertility issues as well. Yes. Um, I, 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 you know, one of the things that actually came up in the Michael Knowles versus Brad Plumbo debate, which was interesting. Everyone should go check it out. Uh, was the case the moderator made where, where she said, what about children who are predicted to be very short? And so their parents give them specific hormone drugs to try to make them taller. Is that very widespread? I guess that's the thing that happens. I, I knew a, I knew a kid that uh, received, yeah, like steroids basically or something along those lines when he was young and he was still very short, but <laughs> you know, yeah. didn't work. Well, yeah. to be fair, <laughs> nah, I shouldn't, I Poor shouldn't, guy. shouldn't even go. Poor there. guy. I can't. Yeah. If, 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 if we had those back in the day, we wouldn't have had Napoleon. See? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For better or for worse, though. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, he would have still been Napoleon. He just would have been. Well, I mean, but he would have been, been Napoleon. Napoleon. Out to complex, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he just would have been ripped. Just, just like Napoleon, but like. Maybe he would have been nice, you know? Maybe he wouldn't have gotten into the military. <laughs> would have become like an artist or something. Yeah, I, I, I do. It's an interesting. That wasn't that, that made me step back. I was like, wow, that's an interesting potential double standard that some people might have. For sure. Um, Yeah. Well, it's fascinating, though. I mean, and it, it's it is certainly one of the the topics of our day, which I think will be interesting to look back on in ten or twenty years and see where we've come from here. Because it, it I mean, it this wasn't an issue that I ever remember hearing about or knowing about until the last five years, maybe tops. I, I had a recollection um, not too long ago where I remembered the first time I saw a 
crossdresser is what we said at the time, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know if this was a person who actually identifies a woman, but it was definitely, I was in Walmart and I was with my mom and we're walking down an aisle and I like gaze on this person and they walk by and I was like, hey mom. <laughs> What's the deal? Was that, a, wasn't that a dude? And, and like, and you know, my mother was like, well, son, some people like to dress in the clothing of the opposite gender. And I was like, huh. And that was the day. That was the whole of it. I didn't, it didn't, unlike Michael Knowles, advocated i didn't become a marxist right there on the spot it was just <laughs> oh is that is that what michael Nelson <laughs> no, said? no. I've, I've, I'm obviously characterizing Seeing one transgender i could just see the steam coming here. into kyle's ears over here just like <laughs> i but, mean <clears throat> oh go ahead you know i was just gonna say um you know i i obviously it pre-exists but it's definitely entered the public consciousness recently mm-hmm. um and i think that's what a lot of this is coming down to is people struggling with the fundamentals of People being requesting certain pronouns. That's a that's a cultural innovation. That's not a, that's a new thing. I would say it's, more like demanding. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think I think it. Okay, I think you're right about the larger culture of transgender movement is demanding. I think there are plenty of transgender people, individuals who are not demanding, who are just saying, "Hey, you know, I'm not going to be mad, but this is what I prefer." That's sure, it's like a yeah. politeness thing. Um, Deidre McCloskey. Right, for example, yeah. which was well, but you know, she she was supposed to debate Michael yes. Knowles and backed out. Yeah, uh, they had a great um, Liberty Learn Liberty video a while ago about transgender stuff, and where she covers that, like, kind of criticizes the like, you will call me what I what you what I ask you to, you know, uh, what I tell you to sort of message as ineffective and actually undermining the movement. Um, and, and I, you know, personally know transgender people who are much more tolerant than that and much more understanding that most people are still grappling with this for the first time and trying to get a, minds around how to be polite, when to distinguish between someone who's being a jerk versus someone who's honestly just being authentically themselves. Right. Um, well, I think it's also it, not like a super new thing. Like it seems like a lot of civilizations have gone through this before. Like there was a transgender emperor of Rome back in the day that demanded everybody use their right pronouns and paid a servant infinite amount of money to chop off their genitalia and stuff like that. Like civilizations have gone. This seems to be more like a phase of civilizations to me rather than an actual like this is just like a new cultural innovation. Hmm. It just seems like we're just in this phase that empires tend to go through where we get super obsessed with uh, gender and androgyny and all these things right well it's relatively late in the cycle of civilizations isn't it that these it things tends to be like to uh manifest um douglas murray does a bunch of work on or has done a bunch of work but he's uh he's generally stealing the work from camille paglia which yeah. is identifying the artwork and we just there's a bunch of been a bunch of new art that's been popping up all over the place recently that's talking that's kind of androgynous people right mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's a very interesting time because I think that there's validity to both sides. I, I, I do personally think that it's it's prudent to reserve, you know, these one-way uh, surgical or medical interventions for adults, you know, because kids can't, can't reasonably ma- be expected to make cogent decisions, right? I mean, science suggests that the... The human brain isn't done developing fully until you're 25, right? Um, yet we we can still do all these things like smoke and buy a gun and vote and drink, at, you know, 18 or 21 or whatever, given the particular subject. So I think it makes sense that in order to, you know, if you, if you have to wait to get a tattoo, you should have to wait to make a profound medical decision until you are of uh, of sound mind enough to to you know explore this this stuff like when the real ramifications right the, the 
like really understanding it and not just from a personal perspective but society like the medical institutions need to have time to study what these effects are you know the 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 statistics on you know suicide rates for individuals who feel gender dysphoria you know what what is that versus what are the suicide rates for those that regret transitioning and there are people who are detransitioning and and being very vocal about how they were misled they weren't let in on all of the potential side effects and the fact that they would never really truly operate like the other sex. Mm -hmm. And so to me, there's a big mental health component of this where before medical interventions are taken, uh, uh, taken place, there need to be evaluations of, is this person just, just not adjusting well to society? Are there other factors, mental, you know, psychological factors that are at play that could be explored and could be, you know, affected positively so that person feels more comfortable being the, the unique individual that they are. I think, oh, sorry. One thing I think is um, substantial in the space that I want to criticize of the overall dialogue is it's breaking down into a very crude pro-trans, anti-trans dichotomy, which is both sides are encouraging, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the left is trying to lump transgender minor surgery with the acceptance of trans people in general. Right. Right. Which is like, to them, I can understand, looks like the same thing. The right is trying to fuzz the line between protecting minors and regulating what clothes people can wear. Right. Right. Uh, and that's like adults in public. And that's Michael Knowles saying that he wants to eradicate transgender from public life, which I, which I think is a pipe dream and a really dumb, stupid civil liberties issue. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, no, well, what he said was... I, I think you're mischaracterizing it. Sorry. Yeah, I, I think, absolutely. I think okay. what, he, what he actually said was to, to eradicate transgenderism, the ideology. Isn't that what I said? Trans, no. Well, you said transgender. Like, oh, like, so I meant not, transgenderism. Yeah, I meant the philosophy. This, this was a part, a big part of like when he went super viral with that CPAC quote or whatever. Mm -hmm. This was like a big thing of like misinformation is that he wants to eradicate transgender. Yeah, so they, I was, they're like mischaracterizing mis I wasn't trying right? to say he wanted to actually murder people. What I meant is the philosophy of transgenderism. Sorry, I didn't yeah. fully say the word. I, mean, I was trying to. Um, so I actually was trying not to mischaracterize his position. So thank you for making that clear. Um, but, but I mean, I'm but just I mean, saying, also, I, I, e even that ambition to do that through the state is the criticism, is the question. It's like, I, how to do that? And he's like, well, I'm going to persuade everybody. It's like, well, okay, that's, I'm okay with that. But you got you know, Ben Shapiro also simultaneously saying he thinks local government should be able to tell people what they can wear in public. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, I, I think the, the concern on, you know, pushing back against this is about the kids it's not I don't, I don't think most people care about you know what adults do in their life if they you know whatever they want to do as long as they're not hurting somebody else i mean that would be especially from a libertarian perspective sure. you know fine go for it but there there are a lot of you know to me it's it is uh disingenuous to for the the people who are the trans rights activists who are saying this is all about preventing suicide um, I mean, that's just the shield that they're trying to use to cover up for a lot of other really insidious things that are going on in that, in that movement. And, you know, especially with the kids, like a lot of it is, uh, essentially Munchausen by proxy, you know, parents who are getting clout from having a transgender child all of a sudden, you know, who are doing things to their kids and we're not going to know the effects of this for a lot, you know, 
probably 10 years from now um, when these kids are growing up and, and realize, you know, I was put through some shit. And, you know, it's also, if you look at, like, if, you want, if you're really concerned about suicide, I mean, the vast majority of suicide is men. And I've never heard somebody who's, you know, on the left, you know, let up like, oh, well, we got to stop, you know, railing against the patriarchy and, and you know, pushing mm-hmm. all this ideas because like this is going to lead to suicide. And More, men, yeah, that's right? actually a very fair point. Like saying that your speech shouldn't be, happen because someone might commit suicide is one thing. Saying that um, and, and applying that to men is I think that's, that's a good criticism. Um, that said, I, I do want to push back on one thing you said, Henry, which is that I, when I hear Michael Knowles talk, and he is a he is a social conservative, he believes in using the law to force people to do the things that he wants them to do. Yeah, no, I, I so like I believe him when he says he wants to remove an ideology from public life, right? I, I and if he says no, I, I don't, I will never use force to do that. I'll believe him. Okay, but I don't. He's not doing that, and he didn't do it in the debate with Brad, Brad Plumbo. Yeah. Right? He didn't denounce that. In fact, he danced around it. So I'm... No, no, he, he, he would completely agree with what you're saying here. Yeah. I, I think that you're mischaracterizing other aspects of his argument. Like, like at the end of the day, he is a, like a Christian conservative nationalist right. like that believes in like deep Catholicism. Like, uh, of course he's going to... But most people aren't anarchists. Most people are willing to use right. the government to, to inv- yeah, no, I, I bring their worldview yeah, forward, sure. right? <laughs> but that, but that's, that doesn't make it good or moral, and, and it definitely violates the fundamental principle of individual dignity. But I, I also think that there's kind of some deeper things here, and this kind of, I think, goes into some of what Henri's saying is, like, how much of the transgenderism and how much of the gender ideology debates that are going on right now are are maybe scapegoats for much deeper kind of cultural issues right now. Like, especially with, and what Joe was saying about like mental health and how, how things, how people are kind of feeling about, you know, their psychology right now, like how much of it is like people have problems in their lives and they're trying to find like, Oh, maybe this will make me have meaning in my life. Maybe this will just like, this will get me there. Um, you know, this is kind of like, it's, it's become like a new God, like people, the environment, the transgenderism, all these things. They're like, people are grasping for things to be able to fill their lives with meaning right now. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like well, most of it to me right now just seems like scapegoating. Well, I, I, that's pretty similar to what I said the last podcast where it's like your, where does your, the, where does the meaning of your life come from? Is it become from the belongingness to a group that tells you, informs you a, a lens on the world so that you can find meaning? Or does it come from your individual contributions to making your life and the life of others better? Question though, <clears throat> if, what if, you know, your perspective of making the, your life and the lives of others better is encouraging children to achieve gender affirming care, mm-hmm. to opening up this community. Sure. That to me, it, it gets it gets gray there. Yeah. Right. I think the only um, only fundamental that's well, at least one fundamental uh, that's better. One fundamental that is universal is allegiance to truth. So there's a huge difference between someone who is doing that because it's legitimately they're following what they think is right and they're engaged honestly and with integrity with the evidence and with the best argumentation of both sides versus someone who's doing it because that's they've they've they're, they're doing it illegitimately and without integrity right so if they're doing it strictly as a political power play well that that i don't think you're going to find what you're looking for mm-hmm. right but if you're doing it because it's a legit pursuit of truth then i think i think you're in a you're in a much more sound foundation and i, and I 
know and respect people who disagree with, uh, with your guys' point of view about transgenderism. Um, and their pursuit of that is because they have a legitimate fear or a legitimate experience of being a teenager and unable to get that kind of care. And they think it would have made their life better. For so sure. I, I, I'm not going to look at that person and be like, you're wrong for that. <laughs> like, like, come on. I mean, I, mean, I, I, can't, I yeah. don't know their life better than they know their, right. their life. Right. Exactly. Which is obviously why we're all libertarians sitting at this table in this room, right. you know, advocating for people to generally be able to do with their own lives what right. they want. The question is, what if you aren't able to truly understand the ramifications of your actions? Right. And you are, are I mean, you're under the, the wing of a parent who in some way maybe doing exactly what they think is right and true and, and fulfilling the promise of, uh, you know, of a future, a bright future for their child by exploring these avenues. And I think that that's, that's admirable. If that's the case, it's unfortunate if it's not the case, we don't know, obviously, yeah. but the question is, you know, and I, and I raised this last time, how, how do you, how do you separate this line as a libertarian, someone who, who isn't in the business of using the force of government to tell other people how to run their lives? How do you feel a certain way about an issue and not use the force of government to bring that into culture, to bring that into being? Yeah. So Murray Rothbard in his book, The Ethics of Liberty, solves it like this. He says, parents own their kids. You cause them. That. What's that? I disagree with that. Yeah, I know. But he, he believes that, right? He believes that parents own their kids. Um, that he solves the problem consistently with the ownership principle, uh, but he does believe that kids have the right to leave, right? At any given time. Right. So Murray Rothbard also believed that you had the right to evict your kids. Yeah, too, right? evict your kids. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. This is a high level philosophy, just conducting a thought experiment about the nature of the self ownership principle. Maybe he misinterpreted something. And I think it's okay to disagree with Murray Rothbard. That said, it is consistent with the the problem I brought up last podcast, which was you have the prey away the disease family, and you have the transgender family. Both are operating on a particular paradigm that might be harmful for their kids. Does that legitimate the use of force by other people against that family? I think it's a paradox and a very difficult one to navigate. If you say the state's purpose is to protect people, protect individual rights, including the rights of children, perhaps from their parents, then you've made it a political question. And then it's a question of political power, which is 50% plus one. Right. And so right now we have a supermajority of Republicans. So they're using that power to say, well, in the transgender case, you know, we're going to say that that's child abuse and they're completely mum on the religious case right now. If we had a, a, a Democrat supermajority, we might see a very different result. It seems like no matter what side you're on in the world that we live in, where there are institutions that kids in particular are more or less required to take part in, such as education, you have to take the path of least intervention in these sorts of cases in order to not apply unfairly a, a value judgment outside of the bounds that, that a particular institution is supposed to be carrying out. Right. Mm -hmm. In the case of education, to me, it's like the problem, the problem isn't that certain people, teachers or whomever have a different, a, a lifestyle that suits them. That is transgender or otherwise, right. Have a certain identity, have certain pronouns, have a certain sex life. That's great. You you do you, right? The the problem is injecting that into the classroom. That that is usurping the parental ownership of a child and it's going it's going into a gray area where that institution 
hasn't historically lived. That institution really should be to educate youth on on basic principles of how to operate in the world. That's the tricky thing about it. It might have... It might have, it might declare that that's its mission, but it's never been that ever. Well, it's because it's the Prussian model of, you know, because the purpose from Dewey on down from the OG of the whole thing was to inculcate statism. That's the point to make good citizens and workers. Right. Right. I don't disagree. Which is an ideology, right? Like we can look at that and be like, those are just, you know, verbs, you know, for someone or jobs. Uh, but no, that's an that's an idea set, and we've just been inculcating an Americanism idea set, or in a 1950 versions Americana n- n- mindset, or progressive mindset in a pr- previous age, or now in the predominant views of the culture war. Right? Where if you're in a Republican area or state, you're going to learn about how certain things. Right? You're going to learn certain things, and then if you're in a Democrat progressive area, you're going to be in a different sort of situation. Right. And and what I'm saying is though, just it, within this paradigm of public education where yeah. kids have to go to school. Right? Yeah. I mean, I suppose there are ways around that private school, homeschool, et cetera, but there need to be, there needs to be education freedom. Right. Yes. If this is the yeah. primary place where parents feel like their children are being nurtured in a way that is contrary to their values, they need like in every case, the opportunity to walk away from that institution and take mm-hmm. their tax dollars with them. That that's only fair, right? Because then you can say, as a as a conservative and a Christian who doesn't believe in that stuff, you can say, you can you can go live your life in whatever way you want, but my family and and I don't have to be a part yeah. of that. That just seems to be like honest and fair. Yeah, to me. I respect that worldview far better, right? Because a lot of people are like, well, we can't do that because then some someone will teach their kids something I disagree with. In fact, that's mostly what the battle around school choice really is about, is like who gets to inculcate the values of the next generation. What Kyle said, give you the children and I'll tell you what the future is or something like that. Yeah. Lenin? I, I don't know. I think it was Lenin. You're always just quoting Might USSR dictators to us. But that is so much of it. And what it requires to push back against that is the most rare value we have right now, tolerance. Difficult thing. It's a short supply. Difficult right? thing. But saying like, hey, you want to have your Muslim school? Have at it. Here's some education dollars. Get educated. Have a great day. Or how about just the government doesn't give money to any, any school? <laughs> yeah, abolish, well, abolish the Department of Education. Well, Absolutely. that's not where most of the education funding goes. It's abolishing the Department of Public Ed in Montana. But I mean, uh, but that, that I'm, I want to operate within the Overton window. Right. Right. That's (laughs) That's well outside. Uh, Yeah. 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 We're well, but, but we have universal ESAs growing all over the country and it's now within the Overton window where it wasn't five years ago. Yeah. So I, 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 that's a huge step, especially, I mean, there's some complications, right? You want to make sure accreditation is tuned, right? You want to make sure that, you know, you're not too constrained on what the schools are, but you're not completely willy nilly. So you don't get fraud. But there's, you know, with the right kind of regime, I think there's real opportunities for actual pluralism, actual tolerance for people. That's awesome. Yeah, well, well one of the concerns there, because I know James Lindsay, and you and I had talked about this previously, Dave. Mm. Uh, James Lindsay was talking about uh, how school choice is kind of like, kind of a pipe dream because of the accreditation process. Well, he says it's um, worse. He says it's a psyop and a scam. And in fact, he yeah, was, no, he no, he's, he's, about he it says it's a, he says it's an escape route. Like, like they've put you on three sides and you're, you're taking the escape route out, but then they're trapping you within a, a new framework of the accreditation process. Like that's specifically, he's do, he's using a Sun Tzu reference sure. on the art of war. Um, but he, I mean, it's the same thing that happened with ESGs in the stock market and with all these big 
uh, uh, corporations and public companies, right, is is like, yeah, you have control, but as long as you're operating within this framework, this is what makes it so that you're a good investment, so that right. sh- so that you're good for shareholders, right? right? Like it's it's the same type of argument. Would, right? would, would, would those characters get wrong? Is that the choice to do accreditations through these certain channels is a legislative choice? Right. So you have to write it into the law to require a certain accreditation that happens to be woke. Mm-hmm. Right. You can write the law that allows you to get the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum and pay for it with your education savings account. So like th- there's no automatic accreditation requirement in ESA programs. That's not how it works. It fundamentally just un- doesn't understand school choice. We should get him on the podcast to talk about it. I'd be, I would love to debate him about it. It'd be great. Let's do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, I want to, I just want to go back to the, uh, the Rothbard, you know, parents own their kids yeah. kind of idea. I would counter that with, I think parenting is more like, uh, analogous to a financial fiduciary where, you know, if you're somebody who has a trust fund, right, you have somebody who manages that trust fund and his job or her job is to deliver that fund in the best condition to the rightful owner the 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 owner of the the trust when they're of the the right age to be responsible for that mm-hmm. trust mm-hmm. right so the the child owns you everybody owns themselves self ownership is a undeniable fact but if you're a parent your job is to deliver the child into adulthood to to give that future adult you know the person that they're supposed to be so mm. just no, I, I, I like that. Um, I think it's a much better argument than Rothbard's. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because because Rothbard's lacks, and this is not a new criticism. You can go all the way back to like the recent review of Ethics of Liberty, if I remember right. It lacks any duty that goes with freedom, right? So if you cause someone else's existence, do you owe them something? I think yeah. you do. Yeah. I think duty is implied. Uh, I'm in that obligation of causing someone else's existence, duty to feed them, clothe them, educate them, make sure that they can realize their individual potential. Um, so no, I am, um, I, I've, I've, I've long disagreed with Rothbard on that. Yeah. It's a really fascinating take. I think it's really cool. Guys, would you believe we've done almost two hours again? Oh man. Time flies. Fine. Getting into the weeds. <laughs> Any uh, final thoughts before we wrap up? Hey guys, I really appreciate, you know, us diving back into the transgender thing and clarifying our point of view. I really appreciate all of our listeners and everything that's going on here. I mean, I, these are really hard things for me to talk about. And I know for a lot of us, um, but engaging it, like modeling for the listener, legitimate, like struggle with what's going on and open engagement being like, I could be wrong, but this is how I'm seeing it. That's what our world needs right now. So I just, congratulations to you guys. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Likewise. Stunning and brave. We are. <laughs> you know, way to he just take there. that beautiful moment. Oh man! Really dunked it. Just, just dunked it. <laughs> it was like we were like preacher Dave mode, and, and the honoree just like shut that down. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously though, David. I mean, to to echo your point, it, it is tough to talk about because it's so personal, and mm-hmm. and this is a subject that's that I think as libertarians, we often shy away from because it is not our place. We fundamentally don't believe it's our place to tell anybody else how to live. And 
and far be it for me to know what the best way to live is. I'm still trying to figure it out. We're all still trying to figure it out. Uh, so, you know, to that, I, I just, I want to make sure that anybody listening knows that, like you said, we're, we're just trying to interpret the world as we see it and, and, and learn every day. And of course not trying to be insensitive to anybody's decisions, but to just, you know, help. And I think you said it perfectly model a conversation of, of exploration and of honest, uh, you know, attempt at, at civil discourse on a really complex topic. And uh, it's been really fascinating and enlightening. Thanks for watching. Thanks, guys. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.